Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, first off, thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a few moments to follow the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I have known this week's guest for well over a decade. Thomas P. Vitale is a television and film writer producer. We met when he was exec VP of programming and original movie at Sci-Fi Channel and the Chiller Network. There were over 350 original movies made during his tenure at Sci-Fi, including Roger Corman's Sharktopus, Stan Lee's Harpies, and Lightspeed, and the social media sensation Sharknado 1 and 2. He is exec producer of Pandora, a scripted series for the CW Network and Amazon Streaming, and is exec producer on Slasher, a streaming horror series, Safe Haven, a YA genre series. He is currently on post-production on a science fiction film, 57 Seconds, starring Morgan Freeman and Josh Hutcherson. And as we speak, he has just now returned from Bulgaria, which we'll talk more about on that. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much, John. It's so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me to uh, your podcast, which I'm a big fan of. Thank you. That's great. I appreciate that. So um, I've got so many different questions to to go over with you. And this is um, where even though I've got several written down, I know by chatting with each other, more things are going to pop up. So the first thing that like interests me is you just got back from Bulgaria. When we scheduled this, you're on your way to Bulgaria. And I thought Bulgaria was vampires only and horror. But then I checked to see what's filmed in Bulgaria. 300 Rise of an Empire. Wrong turn. Well, that one is horror. The Expendables. Hitman, Conan the Barbarian, and The Black Dahlia. Some of those I've really enjoyed as movies, and they were filmed in Bulgaria. So um, can you just a little bit about like how Bulgaria came to be so cool and how you ended up going there for your project? So when I first started doing the original movies at Sci-Fi, we were always looking for new places, different places to shoot for, for a variety of reasons. Some, some reasons were cost savings, um, and some reasons were just locations and great artists who were in these different locations. So we shot all over the world and we got really, you know, great both economies and movies out of um, a couple of production companies that we were using out of Sofia, Bulgaria. The way Bulgaria became kind of a film um, center in many ways is after the Berlin Wall fell. Bulgaria had its own national studio, which had done a lot of movies for both Bulgaria and for Eastern Europe. And, um, when the wall fell, they had a, they had a lot of um, people who understood how to make films. They had a lot of crews there that were, were looking for work now. And some um, international and American producers went in and they built some studios there. And then it took a while, obviously, to, to attract people around the world to Bulgaria to tell them what they have. But we got in there pretty early at Sci-Fi with a company called UFO in particular, um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, UFO Films, another company <laughs> called New Image made some films for us. And yeah. they, they've kept building and building. So, so I did the show um, Pandora there that was produced there, the CW series. Interestingly, um, UFO, that, that production company, just put in one of those um, video walls. Um, and, uh, you know, the volume video wall that, that a lot of the big series that like Mandalorian's done by, with that video wall. So it's the yeah. LED video wall. So now they have one in Bulgaria as well. You get a lot, they, they, the talent, the, the people, they can build great sets. There, there's a lot of different locations. They have mountains and they have, 
you know, quar- rock quarries that look like barren planets. And um, they, they have ski mountains, so you could do snow. Um, they have they have lakes and seashores. Um, they have studios where you can build different sets. And now, and now obviously, the video wall that I just mentioned. They also, some of the Bulgarian... Um, studios shooting nearby Greece. So if you need tropics, you can, you can shoot there. So the, my partners that I work with and, and I have found um, it's a, it's a great place. We don't shoot everything there, uh, but we do shoot, shoot a lot there. Um, and now, you know, they, they've even put in a, a tax credit, which we could talk about later and how that works with film production, um, but government incentives and tax credits for, for production. Oh God, I appreciate that. So if you can say, what were you actually just recently returned from now what were you doing there um i was doing a preliminary scout on um on a, a production coming up for next year which which i'm not at liberty to say what it is just yet but it's based on a book series so that's relevant to um what we're talking about on this podcast um and we were doing a preliminary preliminary scout i i will say on the book side of things most buyers out there when i say buyers i'm talking about networks television networks, streamers, you know, streaming services, international buyers, studios. Most people are looking for what we call um, underlying IP. IP stands for intellectual property, as, as you know. And it's great to have original work out there. And I, I love all the, all the original work. You know, I, I, as a fan myself of all sorts of, of genres, I, I love seeing something completely original. But a lot of buyers... They, they want something based on something else in books, short stories. They're such um, a fertile um, area to, to, to create a movie from, uh, graphic novels, comic books, uh, scripted podcasts, um, magazine articles, um, novels, biographies, um, histories. And they, but the written word often becomes IP for the film word. So that, that's something important. And, and the best way to, to create IP and to, for your listeners to, to get their stories out there, get them out any way you can, you know, through, through the Writers of the Future program, through, through publishing, through podcasts, and, and, and then, you know, things get optioned and things get made. I get now, this is going to be my later questions, but now we're into this area here. So on a person... Like, so you've published hundreds of, of movies, uh, or published, <laughs> I'm a publisher. You've produced, <laughs> you've produced hundreds of yeah. movies, and so there's obviously a way to get them to you. You say that what's important is to get them published, uh, that stories published, short stories, and, and whatever like that, and then you then will find them yourself, and, or do you, does somebody have to pitch them to you? So uh, it, it's a, there's no single, single answer to that. When I was at the network, when I was at Sci-Fi, and we did, as you said, about 350 original movies between Sci-Fi and, and Chiller Network, um, more, more, many more on Sci-Fi and then Chiller towards, towards the end. Um, some were based on like sequels of theatrical movies, um, you know, like the Lake Placid movie, which is a pretty, uh, which is a David E. Kelly movie, a pretty, pretty well-known movie. We did a number of sequels to, to that. We, we did a lot of sequels to existing movies. So right. that was working with a studio looking at the properties they had and said, what movie could we sequelize for sci-fi? Okay, that was one way. Another way was we weren't really, sometimes people came to us with a short story or, or a book and said, let's turn this into a movie. There were a number of producers I worked with at sci-fi. Um, those 350 movies, if I had to guess, and, and uh, 
I don't, I never did the count. I'm going to guess that of those 350, I probably worked with 35 or 40 different producers and production companies to make those 350 movies over the 12 to 15 year period we made them. Um, Sometimes they came to us with underlying IP, books, comics. Other times I was open to original ideas. I wanted original ideas. Um, And the original ideas came from from anywhere, you know, there was we Sharktopus, Roger Corman, Sharktopus. That was an idea. Someone who worked for me, um, a woman named Nicole Sands, she worked with me, not for me, she worked with me in our, in our group because um, she was in the publicity side, uh, the promotion and marketing side. She, her daughter at dinner one night came up with the idea of Sharktopus. Uh, she, she was like seven or eight years old. She, I, I believe, you know, the story was, she said, Mommy, you know what would be funny if you if Sci-Fi made a movie called Sharktopus? Nicole comes to me the next morning and said, you never believe what my daughter Gabby said. And he said, Sharktopus. I'm like, that's brilliant. We're going to make Sharktopus. And I called up Roger Corman and I said to Roger, um, and, and uh, hopefully a lot of you listeners know who Roger Corman is. If not, they, they can look him up. He's um, been, pre- and he's still producing. He's been producing movies, mostly, you know, he's considered the king of B movies. He's done all sorts of types of movies, but since the 1950s, he's in his nineties now and he's still working and producing and still out there. Uh, he's amazing. And, and I called up Roger and, and, and right. And this is Roger has said this in interviews. So I'm not, I'm not giving, you know, talking out of school here. I said, Roger, I want to make a movie with you called Sharktopus. I think it'll be very buzzy and let's develop that idea. So the idea came from a one word title. That's what we developed from. <laughs> And Roger, who's known for who for making kind of these over the top crazy creature feature type movies, said at first he said, "Oh, does Sharktopus go too far? I'm not quite sure. Will the audience accept that?" I'm like, "Oh no, Roger, it's perfect for our audience. The, the, the press is going to eat it up. Everyone's going to laugh." And he said, "Wait a minute. Why don't we do Octo Shark?" I said, "It's not as funny as Sharktopus." And Roger stopped and thought, and then he said. Yes, let's do Sharktopus. And that was as simple as that. And I said, okay, we're going to green like this. And, and then we developed this very funny movie. Uh, Eric Roberts was in it and a number of other familiar faces. And uh, it became one of the buzzy movies on the channel. Um, and, and we made these movies, you know, sci-fi at the time had um, some Emmy award-winning shows. We had, we had a Steven Spielberg miniseries that won an Emmy for best miniseries. We had Battlestar Galactica, the, the, the remake of it in the 90s that won a Peabody award. But these movies, these these over-the-top creature feature disaster horror movies were meant to just be escapist. They were just the fun escapist movies. And that's what, you know, Sharktopus was. So we had different types of things going on. But nowadays, the way people get things to me, you know, it's, it's IP is great. And, and it's a lot, like I said, it's a lot easier to, to get story, you know, intellectual property made. I want to talk about 57 Seconds, the movie I'm doing now, which is based on a story. And we could talk about that now or... or uh, yeah, I could tell one other question, because the other thing is Sharknado 1 and 2, because that was also two, two amazing phenoms, you know, in terms of that type of movie. So Sharknado, which was the most buzzy uh, <laughs> of all of them, and social media definitely helped with that. That was a movie where... <laughs> I got to take a step back. We, we, we used to look at the calendar of the, of the following year to see, could we base movies around the things that were happening? Like, was there, 
the 25th anniversary of the, or the 30th anniversary of the moon landing, for instance, or whatever the number 40, or, or the anniversary of something else or a holiday. You know, we, we, the movies were Saturday night movies. It was Valentine's Day on a Saturday. Maybe we would do some kind of a Valentine's Day, you know, horror movie. Um, was, how about summertime? Oh, shark, shark movies in the summer is always great. You know, what, what will we do around 4th of July? So we were always looking at the calendar. Um, and in one particular year, St. Patrick's Day, fell on a Saturday. So we said, we should do some kind of a leprechaun, you know, a, a scary killer leprechaun movie. So we commissioned that, we made it. The writer of that movie was, was a man named Anthony Ferranti. Anthony used the word Sharknado in that script as a throwaway joke. It had nothing to do with sharks. He, he, they, their characters were saying, we should tell the police about the killer leprechaun. And the other one said, do you remember last year with that Sharknado event? We'll look like fools. And Someone in my group was reading the script first, and uh, uh, he came to me and said, look at this word, Sharknado. That's a movie. Again, sometimes we did things right off of a name. This was uh, someone named Chris Regina came to me and said, and I looked and said, oh, my gosh, that is a movie. And that's how it kicked off from there. And then from there, and Anthony became the, the guy who wrote it. He, he was also a director. He became the director of the Sharknado franchise. Another guy in my group, um, then Ray Canella, who – came up with you know, something called Mansquito, for instance, and plenty of others, you, you know. Yeah. But that was another one where, oh, it's a great idea. That was the 19, um, and, and we made that. And and it, it's that kind of creativity. Once you know what you're doing, what you're trying to do, it's that kind of creativity that's so much fun. It was a fun, creative environment we had there. Another woman named Karen O'Hara, who um, recently passed, unfortunately, she also was someone who would come up with these these crazy ideas. So we used to sit together, come up with these these ideas always thinking about the audience and, and what the brand of these movies are. If you're, if when, when people came to pitch us as, as a network, I would always say, just make sure you know the type of movies we're doing on Saturday night. Or if you're pitching us a show, the type of shows we might be doing for Sunday or Friday night, what would fit with a Battlestar Galactica or a Stargate or a Farscape with the movies, what fits with the, you know, summer shark movies or, or the holiday theme movies or the monster movies. So when you're pitching a publisher, or a network, or, or, or you know, a, a scripted podcast company, whoever. Just make sure that you you know what they're looking for, and you've got all these resources now to find out what different people are looking for. Of course, um, it was always strange when you know you're sitting at Sci-Fi Channel and someone comes in with a, a romantic comedy that has no science fiction, horror, supernatural. You're like, hey, you're at the wrong network, but let me send you down the hall. <laughs> yeah. um, so just always know who you and, and prepare your pitch. Um, and then, and it's a little bit more advice to people who are pitching, maybe some young people who are out there listening who might be pitching someone, be light on your feet. So if the buyer says, ah, you know what? That's a great idea, but we did something like that last year. If only I had a movie, not with sharks, but with snakes, you're like, oh, I've got a snake movie. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be light on your feet in, in, a, in a meeting and, and if, you, if you want to get started and and – so we, we had a lot of fun making all, all of those movies. And Sharknado, Sharknado got really, really buzzy. It was right at the, the start. Not right, right, but it was right when Twitter was just starting to really take off. And I'm home. And, and that was when we aired on a Thursday night in the summer. We, we started to play with different nights instead of just Saturday. And I'm home and I get a text from someone I worked with who said, uh, have you looked at Twitter? I'm like, no, no. Sharknado's blowing up. Go to Twitter now. And and then we're all texting each other while we're watching all the celebrities talking about it. And for the year, I think it was the second most 
tweeted about Thing in Entertainment, or maybe Total Thing that year, um, second only to um, Game of the Red Wedding episode of Game of Thrones, um, and, and a close second. So, and then it got headlines in you know newspapers yeah. and magazines, and, and it just, and then we wound up doing the network did like five more, um, and um, no, it was, no, it was one expect, no one like- expected that. It's funny you 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 can't design something to be buzzy. It just sort of happens. It's magic when something takes off and becomes viral. Yeah, it, it's just kind of this magic that happens. It's you know, I, I know so many people who have tried over the years. I'm going to create something viral. Great if you can do it, but it's it's more difficult to. It's, a lot of times, you could create something that's high quality. You create something that's fun. You create something that's aimed at, at a particular audience that you know they're like. But to go viral, there's got to be that magic of timing and the right elements and. And and just the magic in the air that makes it viral. And Sharknado right. got became viral. Yeah, it was it was totally outrageous. That whole concept it was like wow. But it's funny we did we did one that I think I mean, we had done it years later when there was social media it was towards the beginning. A, a guy uh, who worked for me named Russell Friedman came up with this idea of doing monster arc. It was supposed to be Noah's first arc where he had he was given the 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 quest by uh, God to round up all the monsters from before the time of man and bring them out and sink them. And if he could do that, then he'd be given the ark, uh, the real ark as, as his mission. He had to prove himself on the first mission. Now, fast forward to the present and a group of soldiers find the ark, but they don't find Noah's ark. You know, there's always these, these TV shows searching yeah. for Noah's ark and, and these reality shows. They found the monster ark and there was still one monster alive in it on the top of a mountain and it gets out. And now they have to you know, defeat this one monster, uh, which is kind of a magical beast. And and Russell came up with this great concept that we wound up making that. And there were articles because what happened was some people thought when we went out with what, what it was about, Noah's first arc, that it was real. We never said it was real, but I guess, uh, you know, it got a little misinterpreted yeah. on the internet and it got buzzy and, and there were a lot of hits on like message boards and, you know, a lot of articles on like Yahoo and and, and everything. And we were like, oh, this this is viral. But back then, viral was small. Yeah. Like if we had done Monster Arc five or 10 years later, it would have blown up. So you just, it's all about timing. Right. Well, that's good. Because I, I was definitely interested in those, in those movies there. So now I'm, your movie with Morgan Freeman and Josh Hutcherson, uh, 57 <laughs> Seconds. So, so, yes. All right. So this movie has a difference. Now, now I'm not working for a network. I'm an independent producer. I've been an independent producer um, for about seven, eight years. So I'm, I'm making my own stuff. I'm pitching. So a lot of it's development. So a lot of what I do as an independent producer is, is development, developing concepts, trying to writing a lot of writing myself. Um, a lot of looking at what other networks or studios are buying and, and what people might want, but also developing what I, what I like, you know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of science fiction. I'm a big fan of, of the supernatural. So I, I usually stick to, you know, those, not always, but I usually stick to those genres. And so I search for stories. I search for intellectual property that I could option. Um, I'm creating my own stories and IP. And then I'm pitching. A lot of it's being a salesman too. I'm, I'm always out there trying to convince people, you know, to, to invest in this, buy this, you know, commit to it for their network, put, put money behind it. There's, there's all sorts of parts to the job. Um, yeah. There's a creative, it, it's funny. It's, it's a right brain and a left brain um, kind of process. You know, it's, it's the creative side. You're coming up with ideas, developing ideas, working on your own or working with other writers and other creators. 
and all aspects. Yeah, when we get into talking about movie production, it it's affects people and sound, people and music and actors and performance and and auditions. So there's all of that. But there's also the business side of it, the marketing and the sales and the raising of money and the figuring and the budgeting and figuring out all of that. So it really is a right and left brain thing being a pr- producer. So 57 seconds is based on a a pretty well-known short story or was well-known years ago by a, a British writer named E.C. Tubb. And the story was called Lucifer. I know you read, yeah. read it. He, he actually wrote, the story came out in, in, in like 1970, give or take a year. Um, he wrote two versions of it. One was called Lucifer and one's called Fallen Angel. He just, he kind of tweaked it and republished it a couple of years later. Um, it's not about the devil. It's not about Lucifer. It's not about a fallen angel. It, that's a, the title works on the level of metaphor, but it's a story about. It, it's basically a time travel story, and it's really about one character's journey um, from from getting a power, uh, a t- time travel power. He, he has the ability to set time back by fifty seven seconds at a time in the story, and he uses that power to to really advance his own his own interests, whether it's with money success, women, um, and he really is corrupted by this power. It is, I mean, for anyone listening to this podcast, think about what you can do. You could correct any mistake you made. If you said something wrong, correct it. If someone else says something that you liked, you could go back for seven seconds. You take that line, you say it, and all of a sudden you're the funny guy. Um, or in, in a meeting, someone has a great idea. Boom, you take the idea. You could say whatever you want to to please a boss, a uh, uh, someone you're attracted to, you go to a casino and you can gamble, always win um, at, at a casino. There's all sorts of things that you could do that are dishonest and corrupting. So the reason it's fallen angel or Lucifer is, is this power, you know, absolute power corrupts. And, and it's this character arc where this character is, is corrupted by this, this power. All right, I read this story in the seventh grade. My, my seventh grade English teacher uh, Mr. John Burke um, at JHS 101 in the Bronx, uh, <laughs> junior high school 101. Uh, uh, he loved um, macabre stories or Henry type stories, Twilight Zone type stories. And it was really one of my first exposure to, to genre literature like that. And, and he assigned a, a lot of that. And this is one of the stories he assigned. And, and I got to say, I got to say on that, I could totally hear Rod Serling introducing this story it was just like oh my gosh this is such a twilight zone type of a story it is and without giving away the ending it has a great twist ending yeah um and it was an award-winning story well he was a british writer and won a number of um um, writing awards in 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 europe um, when it first came out and it was in a scholastic reader in the u.s like a scholastic really wow and i remember the story I, I think my whole life I always imagined if I, if I ever said or did something that I didn't like, oh, if I only had a 57-second ring. <laughs> yeah. But even at the time, seventh grade, which I, I had wanted to be in the TV and film business from the time I was in like fourth or fifth grade. And I thought in the seventh grade, I want to turn this into – I was a big Twilight Zone fan. I was like, I want to make it turn this into a movie or a TV show. So even in the seventh grade, I remembered this story. So when I became an independent producer, I thought, what are the stories that I loved – that I want to turn into something. I remember the story. I could not remember the title of it. And I, I couldn't think, I, I have like all my old books. I've kept all my old books from childhood. And, and uh, I love sharing my old books with my children. And, and 
but for some reason I couldn't find the short story, the, the Scholastic Reader, which I think what happened was it was a loner. You know, the school would, yeah. you know, it was a school library book. It wasn't one that I owned. So I didn't remember the author. I didn't remember the title, but there is Google. <laughs> Google <laughs> exists. So I Googled just details about the story and immediately up came the story, the title, the author. And then, okay, how do I option this? Um, the writer had passed away uh, a few years ago. Um, yeah, I think he passed away about seven, eight years ago at the age of, I think, 99. Um, but his estate was still handling his his literary properties. He was able to option it. Um, and then to get a movie made, you actually need attachments. You need to attach a director um, and you need to attach a star that people want to see, you know, it, it, to, mm -hmm. get a, to get a decent budget to make it. And we were, we were fortunate enough to get two stars. We got Morgan Freeman and we got Josh Hutcherson. Um, How'd you and, do that? Uh, you work with a casting agent. Um, and you, and you work with the distributor. So someone was interested in the script first, first, I obviously I developed the script with, with a fantastic writer too. And, um, yeah. And so there is some investment there and I, and I had someone who believed in the story a producer, um, a producer who had, um, development money available. So I mean, without going to every step, step-by-step step, first, you go to the producer with the development money. He said, yes, I love this idea. Let's find a great writer, found a great writer, wrote the script use that script to attract a great director, attract the director. Now you have the director and a great script. And now you start find, trying to find a, a distributor production company. And then they say, okay, we love the script. Yeah, you go through a lot, you get a lot of rejection. I mean, I'm cutting to yeah. the good parts, but you, there's a lot of people who go, yeah, it's not what we're doing. No, we don't want that. I'm not sure. Then you find someone who, who loves it. Um, we had a couple of companies actually who really liked it. And then one company stepped up with, you know, the, the money to make it. And they said, but you got to find attachments. And that's when you bring in a casting director. Um, and then you find, um, because we had a strong strip, script and a strong director, you were able to attract talent like, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman and Josh Hutcherson. And once you have that package put together, um, you, you, you have the money. And, and then you have to find a place to shoot it. And, um, you know, we shot that one in Louisiana, not, not in Bulgaria. We shot that one in Louisiana <laughs> and, you know, you, you, um, start working on every single aspect of it, the, the, the production design, what the movie looks like. Um, you know, the locations, you go down to Louisiana, you scout the locations. Where's this scene going to be shot? Where's this scene going to be shot? You make a schedule. How many days are you shooting? Um, in post-production, you figure out the special effects, the music, um, you know, the, the sound design. You, you did all this? Well, you don't do it all personally. You hire, you go out to Louisiana and you have a, a locations manager who takes you around, who, who's read the script also. And then, they, and then, you know, you've had conversations. You say, oh, in this scene, I want something that, that looks like this kind of a, a place. And there's one scene in the script where they're at a, um, like a big arena, like a big sports arena. So where we're shooting how many locations that are large enough that are sports arenas that are available to shoot in. Here's the three places you could shoot this giant auditorium, the sports college sports arena, this other place you go and you look, and you're like, Oh, that's good. How much will that cost? Oh, negotiate for that. Oh, if we can't afford that one, we'll take this one. So it's all negotiation for your out. Another place we want, Oh, we need a mansion. We need a, a wealthy person's house. They show you a dozen wealthy houses until you find the one with the director, you know, cause it's gotta be the director's vision now. Oh, that, that fits 
what we're going for. So, so the director now has a lot of say in, in the look and feel of a movie. I, I will say that it, there's a difference in making TV, and I've done TV and movies. Television is a writer-producer's medium more than a director's medium, although the director's super important. Movies more a director's medium, although the writer's important, of course. But what I mean by that is on a movie, the director's boss. The director has the final say in all the creative, not the producer. It's the, once you've hired that director, you're hiring them because of, of their talent, their skill, their vision. Because it's a single project and the director becomes the boss of that one project, sort of all the, the what they call the department heads, the head of the editor and the head of uh, the, the production, the scout, the production design, the, the sound, the music, uh, the, the casting, it all goes funnels up to the director who works with the producer, but the director should get final final say, not always final cut because the, the business side of it, a lot of, most times, unless it's a huge director, the producer gets final cut on TV. Because there's multiple episodes, you're always going to have a lot of different directors. So if you watch your favorite TV show, every episode might have a different director or one director might do every fourth episode. There, the writer-producer is the boss because they're trying to, the writer-producer, he or she is writing this continuing story and they're the one who knows where the characters are going, what the character arcs. So it's like a novel, a four season TV show, you know, name, name your favorites, especially serialized shows. You know, it's, it's, I'll go back to it, to like a classic show, like, like the X-Files. Chris Carter was what they called the showrunner. He was the head writer producer. He knew where the show was going long-term, where he wanted to take these characters. So he's the one who's in charge, Chris Carter. And then he brings in different directors who can help him achieve his vision for the show. Um, but anyway, so, so rather than I, I didn't do every piece of this, you hire people who are experts, you know, cause I'm not an expert in location. I don't live in Louisiana. I don't know the places in Louisiana. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not an editor, I, but I know when I see a cut, I review a cut. Oh, that edit's wrong. Or, or this, this scene's moving too slowly. Let's move it faster. So you work with each person. That's what the producer does. The more experience you get, the better you're able to give appropriate notes and work with people. But you also have to trust your team because I'm not an editor. I need to trust the editor. But more more apropos to this podcast and, and to people who are writing stories, if you go back and read the story Lucifer by E.C. Tubb, it's a seven, eight-page story. I mean, you, you read it, John. It's, it's yeah. a short story. Yeah. When you read that story, it's not a movie. It, 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 it's, it's a 30-minute Twilight Zone episode. Right. How do you turn it? There's, there's really only one character. There's two characters in it. That, you know, how do you turn that into a movie? So you work with the writer and you have to create a whole world around the character. And then the movie we made is not the story. It's the, it's the concept of 57 seconds of the ring that, that can set time back. It's, it's the metaphor of, of, of this, what this ring stands for, the corruption that this ring stands for. But the story itself and the characters are made up for the movie. So right. a lot of times you'll see people complain, oh, this, this isn't exactly what was in the book. The, the book is this and the movie is that. And sometimes, um, sometimes it has to be that way because it, you know, a six-minute story, a six, a six, seven-page story with two characters is not a 90-minute movie. So that's one of the things, that was the first thing I had to do with the writer is figure out how to turn this into a film. Um, 
And then once we had the script, a lot of people came in, the director came in and he had his notes and the distributor came in, they had their notes. Oh, we should change it like this. This, this will work better. And the actors come in and they have their notes. So it, it becomes, um, making film and television is sort of, um, the, the, it's a cliche, but making film and television is, is a team sport. Whereas is writing a novel or a short story is generally the writer and maybe the writer and that person's editor. Um, but so there is there is different process that goes on. I get it. Yeah. I mean, this is really good because this was hoping to be able to get out of you. I had a bunch of questions, which you already answered before I'm asking them. So this is good. Um, so I'm just curious, what, what's it been like working with your two uh, actors there with uh, Morgan and Josh? They were fantastic. They were so professional. Um, they came in, they 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 knew that they had done the character work, you know, they, they knew their characters and what they wanted to do with the characters. And, and, you know, they, they always knew their lines. They always knew, knew what they needed to be They're, They, they just, I mean, Morgan, you know, can learn incredible you know, reams of dialogue and, and, you know, they're, they're, these guys, there's never a flub on set. You're not wasting any, any, any minute. I mean, they're really creative, really smart, really professional. It was a dream working with, with both of them and, and the rest of the cast, I think, um, the rest of the cast really looked up to them and looked look to them for leadership. You know, I, I think Josh Hutchison has a, has a, a career ahead of him. He's a very young guy. He's a career ahead of him, if, if you ask me as a director, because he really understands filmmaking and, and he's very creative and really smart and a really nice guy. And Morgan, you know, he's, he's just, I mean, he's still, he's still doing top notch work. Um, you know, no, no interest in slowing down or retiring. He's, he's fantastic. So it was exciting. Exciting to work with with people like that on you know this movie based on on a story I love since the seventh grade. It, it was it's very very for I feel very blessed to have yeah. been able to um, both do this for a living and 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 get this particular story made. Well, that's great. Now yeah, and I do have to thank my seventh grade English teacher. Um, <laughs> okay, good. And, and you know my parents too love this kind of stuff. We used to. I, I one of the earliest shows I remember watching is The Twilight Zone, my favorite show of all time. <laughs> Yeah, and now, so Rob Sterling was amazing. Yes, and so many of those episodes were based on short stories. Yeah, a lot of them came from the Pulp Fiction era, from the '30s and '40s, and some '50s that Rod Sterling was pulling from. He, you know, he just unabashedly said, "No, that's I got this from there." Yeah, a lot of, a lot of these pulp stories. Now, when we first met, I used to come to New York to visit you, trying to pitch different uh, um, Owen Hubbard stories. We were just releasing the stories from the Golden Age, and we we're trying different things and. I mean, obviously it never happened, but you're always going, yeah, let's, okay, what else you got? What else you got? What else you got? And you were always um, interested in hopefully to be able to find something and, and to make a connection. And I never had a problem when I was coming up there to see you. I always enjoyed seeing you. Um, what was it about the Owen Hubbard stories or his storytelling that you liked? You know, I liked, I liked the sense of adventure. I liked the imaginative nature of it. I liked that these were cutting edge stories for the time, you know, he, he went places that no, no one else went, but I, I think there was this real sense of um, adventure. I, I remember you had invited me to a really special event at the Explorers Club in New York. I don't know if yeah, you remember. I do. I went to that and, and I still, that was a highlight for me. I, I still remember, you know, I went to a lot of events um, and, you know, a lot of them just fade into the background of, of one's memory. That one still stands out, being in the Explorers Club and learning about uh, that sense of exploration and that sense of, of going places and doing things no one had done before. And then having that 
having that brought out in the stories really worked. And, and, you know, I wish we had a chance to make, make some of those back when I was doing all those movies for sci-fi. I think at the time we were really doing, um, you know, more of the creature feature movies and, and, and a different type of movie. And, and some of the stories were too big to do on the budgets we were working with at the time. Yeah. Um, but I, I really enjoyed, you know, talking to you and reading and, and then you shared with me some of the stories on books on tape. And I, I got into, I, I used to walk to work. I commuted by walking. Um, and it was like a 30 minute walk each way. Um, yeah. and I love listening to, to some of the, the, uh, on tape, actually on cassette tape back then, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then later on, on, on CDs. They, they, it, it really was a sense of adventure that, that I, I loved and, and the imagination. Um, sci-fi had a um, slogan at the time, imagine, or maybe it was, it, it came later, this slogan, but it was imagine greater. And a big part of science fiction and supernatural storytelling is the imagination and how a great story, whether it's a Twilight Zone episode or some of the stories you shared with me or, or you know, the EC Tub story, continues to tickle your imagination, makes you think, make you wonder. Um, one of sci-fi's earliest slogans was ever wonder. And and it really does just a great story stays with you. And, yeah. and a great genre story, science fiction, fantasy, supernatural, makes you continue to wonder. Wonder about places that you've never been. Wonder about worlds that you, you've never seen. And, and I think it was some of the stories captured that. Yeah. Did I give you the book Fear? The one by Owen Hubbard Fear? Uh, you did at Comic-Con. Um, yeah. I've been, I've been enjoying it because I also have the latest short story collection. I've yeah. been doing that, but Fear, Fear is next because I do want to get to that. And and because uh, I have not read one of the horror stories um, and I'd really like to uh, to, to jump into that um, next after, after the short story book. Yeah, because that's one of the ones that, I mean, Stephen King, Ray Bradbury, um, just almost all the uh, the authors that have got some type of notoriety with uh, thriller and horror acknowledge that's like the granddaddy of psychological thrillers. I, I think that's important also to note that, um, you know, for all the writers listening to this, that the, the best top writers, they know the history of the genres they're working in. You know, they, they, they've all, they're all very well read. Um, they, they read new stuff, um, uh, but they also know the history of things. So, you know, they can, they can easily quote, whether it's fear or going back and quoting, you know, a Poe story or, or uh, an EC Tub story or, or you know, they, they know the history of, of their genres and they, and they know. And it's important because you want to do something different, but you also want to acknowledge what came before and, and understand what's worked for viewers and readers and, and what hasn't. So it's wonderful to hear that that those writers knew fear and knew that knew that story. Yeah, Robert Block called it one of the really really good ones, and um, uh, yeah, it's just it. So I'm anxious to at some point when you when you do get through that to get your your take on that. I will. One. I will. Yeah. You know, it's, you tell you about knowing you know both the old and the new. Stephen King. I remember reading this many years ago. He when his kids were little. And, and there wasn't really such a thing as books on tape or you, there were some books released on audio, but not all books. He would try to fill every minute he had, whether he was driving somewhere or, or, you know, exercising. And he, that's what I do when I'm driving or exercising. I'm listening to books because I want to consume a lot of content, um, books and, and podcasts. And King had his kids read books that he couldn't get on tape into a cassette player 
Uh, and that was like a job. He paid, you know, whatever you give a kid a little, little job. And that's how he could consume even more books because he is incredibly well read and there's not enough hours in the day to read everything. Right. And, and that's part of being such prolific writers actually and know what's going on in, in, in the world that you're in. That's good. Now I'm, I'm curious because one of the things that the Rise of Future judges are very, they're very well read as well. Cause one of the concerns is uh, plagiarism. And so they can tell because they're so well read, wait a minute, this is this story. And the same thing with, with the illustrators of the future too, when somebody's ripped off somebody else's art, which unfortunately does happen. And so they can say, no, this is, I recognize this one here. How much of that is, a, is that a concern in movies when people submitting scripts that plagiarism come to play that then would make a problem for you as a producer to, to move forward with that? You know, it's, 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 you obviously have to be careful about other people's intellectual property. And, you know, you, you will see from time to time, there'll be lawsuits. Um, and you'll see those, you know, in the news and you can Google for different, you know, lawsuits where someone says, Oh, this was based on my stuff. This was based on, on, you know, my book, my movie. But the other thing that sometimes happens is like if someone comes out with, um, a successful, like a, a you know, when, Spielberg came out with Jaws, the first, you know, big budget, big notoriety shark movie. All of a sudden, there were tons of shark movies. It, it, like everything gets released at the same same time. Um, if someone comes out with a movie with, you know, a Harry Potter, you know, movie, you'll see a, a whole bunch of other people with both books about schools of magic. You know, uh, yeah. you know, sci-fi wound up doing The Magicians, the Lev Grossman book, The Magicians, as a series with that book series have been as big without Harry Potter. Would, would he have even written about a school of magic without Harry Potter? Maybe, maybe not. And you read Harry Potter and you know, all of her influences, you know, she was influenced clearly by Tolkien um, yeah. and by so much more. So where is it, you know, what's the line between an influence on a creator, you know, a creator and, um, and something that goes beyond that, or sometimes it's in the market, you know, it's just in the ether, like all of a sudden, you know, you'll, you'll say, well, what movies are coming out in 2023? And then you'll say, oh, there's, there's five movies coming out theatrically in 2023 that are all about, you know, um, the, the hiking in the Rockies and adventures in the Rockies. How did that happen? Is it in the ether or were, did development execs talk to each other in LA and people are like, oh, that's a good idea. Let me see if I can develop something in that area. So it's amazing how, how these ideas bubble up and, you know, everyone tries to be as careful as they, they can. And obviously, you know, with pitches, some, some networks won't take, uh, and some buyers and some producers won't take pitches unless it comes in through a reputable agent because that protects them legally. Because, you know, let's say someone pitches me an idea for a movie about, you know, a, a, I'm wearing a blue shirt right now. Oh, a blue shirt movie. I, maybe I already have a, a movie in development about a guy in a blue shirt, but you just pitched me that. I can say, oh, I have that in development already. I can say, well, no, you don't. You're lying. You made that. Up. So you get into these weird little things. But that's why a lot of people are like, it's got to come through a legitimate agent who understands how the business works. Um, so it is, it's one of those legal questions that people walk very, very carefully. It's a line that people walk very carefully. And like I said, a lot of it is, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, Lev Grossman's books and, 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 and Harry Potter books. They're They're wonderful. And they clear, clear, clearly they're influenced by things that came before by Tolkien. Well, Tolkien is a great influence. I think we all grew up reading Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. It's influenced all of us. Yeah. So 
and there's nothing wrong with with that either. Orson Scott Card, the, the writer of Ender's Game, he has a short story collection called. Um, I'm trying. I forget the name of it. Some of mirrors uh, is in the is in the title of short story collection. But there's a, there's a um, there's a short story in this collection where people who are creative. It's it's some futuristic world where people who are creative are separated from the rest of the world. And maps and not, maps and mirror. Maps and mirror. It's a, it's a great short story collection. And and Card Orson Scott Card's a great writer. Um, He's one of our judges too, by the way. He's been a judge for over thirty years for Writers of the Future. Well, that's that's fantastic. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Well, well, yeah. in that the short story, creators are separated from the world, so they're not unduly influenced by what came before. It's a way to create purity. So, if you were, I, I think that the, the, one of the main characters is, is this young person who's a uh, a classical musician, you know, and, and not never been allowed to hear Bach or Mozart or Beethoven or you know, Schubert or any of the great composers because they want, they just gave this person tons of instruments and let them go from the time they were, you know, thought to have musical talent at four or five years old. They're separated from their parents. They're, they're separated from everyone. They live in the middle of nowhere. There's security around their compounds, so they never hear anything. And, and there's an ethical question in the story. Is this the right thing to do to somebody? But the, the art that's created is completely new because it's not been influenced by anything. And what Card was trying to say, I think, in the story, and you could ask him when you talk to him, but I believe what he was trying to say that thematically is that there's no such thing as not being, you can always find threads of other things in every piece of music and every story that's written in every movie and every TV show, because we've all grown up from the time we were almost born hearing other people's music, other people's creations. Um, so where does influence stop and pure originality start and does and can you ever find that line it's, it's a brilliant story that gets into this question in a different way wow so um yeah he's just i just had an event with uh scott card a few weeks ago where he was he did a live q a supposed to be an hour and went for two and a half hours two hours and 40 <laughs> minutes he just, awesome. he, just, he just loves helping aspiring writers and answering their questions he does that yeah. is awesome <laughs> So now on, from your experience at sci-fi, because I'm a little bit like now, is it even worthwhile for some, for a writer to propose uh, story scripts based upon the fact that nobody's really going to pay attention to them um, if they're not going through some reputable uh, account to, to do that. But given that we'll address that separately. then. so just, let's just say I've got a story. I want to pitch it. When I used to go to you, there was a format you wanted to have. It was like what page of the bullet points. There was a certain thing you had to get done to be able to present. Yeah, I mean, like every, every publisher. Find, is, yeah. Just find like what it is. That's norm. The normal that's, that's looked for the, you know, the, the terminology and define a little bit so that somebody who's, who has this idea, I'd like to do something here, but then they, they take their crayon and they write, they draw little pictures of each of the different scenes or here's my storyboard. You know, it's like, that's yeah. not okay. Yeah. Is, you know, every, every, I mean, it's sort of like publishing guidelines uh, are a little bit more, um, I think standardized, um, across the publishing industry and how to submit. It's a little less standardized, you know, other different networks want, some networks will read full scripts, other networks only want, you know, one pages or proposals. 
Um, sometimes it's a division. Oh, you know, we were the, the movie division at sci-fi since we were making such high volume. I wanted basically one pagers because we were making 24 up to, and some years we're making 36 movies a year. So we had to, I knew what would work. Uh, my team, we knew what would work. So we had to go through the pitches pretty quickly because it's, it's hard to find 36 things you want to make in a year unless you're moving quickly. You can't read hundreds and hundreds of full-length scripts to find the 36 or thousands of full-length scripts. Right. The one. So then one page has helped. Oh, that's possible. Now let's get to the next step, which is slightly longer and then the next step slightly longer until you green light it. A lot of it's, it's a numbers game. You know, at any network, you know, a network may only have, you know, openings for two or three new movies or a new series in a given year or a studio might only make eight movies in a year and they might get, literally a thousand pitches in that year. So some of it's a numbers game. That's why sometimes attachments help, you know, having a great actor or a great director attached. Uh, sometimes it is a great idea and that's what, what wins the day. Um, but a lot of it's Googling, you know, uh, I'm submitting to such and such a place. What are they looking for? And, 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 and doing a lot of, so at least there's places to research things now, but the best thing an aspiring writer can do is write, write and be published, first of all, because the more names they make for themselves, the better it is. You know, you start off, you know, getting some work published in, in online zines and then, then you move up to, to a printed collection and then, and then you get a publishing deal. And then, and, you know, it doesn't happen for most people overnight. And then I didn't, you know, grow up in the business with, but so using social media smart in, in a smart way. There's a, there's a middle school or YA book series right now that, um, my 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 um, two of my daughters are are reading and and the author for that she's on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and she's so good at posting and and connecting with that audience she's a young woman in her twenties herself and she's so good at connecting with teenagers about her characters and her world and her creativity and what she's doing and her book signings you'll see her at a book signing and meeting you know audience members and. She's got so many followers and it helped her get a publishing deal. And, she, and now because she's so followed, that book series is going to be turned into, um, is, is now in development at Universal. Or you look at, um, who was the author who uh, during the pandemic set the record for the most money ever raised on Kickstarter? He wrote those books. That was uh, Brandon Sanderson. 42, 42 million. Yeah. 42, I mean, Brilliant. He, it did, that didn't come out of, out of nowhere. Brandon Sanderson clearly knows how to use social media in a way that I don't know how to use, but uh, he, <laughs> yeah. uh, and very few people that I use, I guess. And, you know, but he, he, he puts out a lot of content about creativity and his stories and his characters. And yeah, I was just on a panel with him. I was just on a panel with him a few weeks ago in Salt Lake city at uh, Fanex convention and he said on there, he says, look at, you know, the secret to it, you know, to get a $42 million Kickstarter is that you have a lot of fans. And he's just, he's worked it at hard. He's got over 30 staff in his, in his company. You know, all, it's just in his Brandon Sanderson brand. He's got over 30 staff working there now. Dragon yeah. Steel, or Dragonheart. Yeah. Or Here's Dragon the Steel, thing. Yeah. He, 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 and he built up to that. It doesn't yes. happen overnight for, for young writers, people just starting out, it, you know. He didn't have 30 people when he first started. You know, he had he had himself. And then he hired an assistant and a researcher and he kept building up. And then he and then he realized, wow, I should I should 
use social media in a smart in a smart way and connect with as many viewers. And he kept going and going and building because everything is iterative for the most. I mean, look, there are overnight successes, but most overnight successes took ten years to become an overnight <laughs> yeah, success. Exactly. I mean, that, that's a cliche, I know, but everything or almost everything is, is iterative. It it takes time. So I think that you know to get your and, but there's more places to publish and get your story out than ever before. There are, there are podcasts, there are scripted podcasts, there are, there are graphic novels, comes to independent publishing. There's, there's anyone with a phone can make a movie now. There, there's, uh, there's so many ways to get yourself and your stories out there, ways I can never have imagined. And, and then eventually when you go and you pitch a network or a studio, going back to your question, You'll have a name, you'll have a reputation, you'll have an agent who wants to work with you, or you'll have, you know, some other attachment, a director or a writer wants to work. Because it's very hard for a first-time writer to walk into a, a network and say, you know, most networks won't take pitches from a first-time writer who's not represented. Some might, but most most won't if you're not connected to a company. Another thing you can do, you know, you've got to have a day job. You know, you, everyone's <laughs> going to have, have make some money. We, we all need to make some money. So got to have a day job. Maybe or, a wealthy, or a wealthy spouse. Yeah, yeah that, that, that helps. But um, for the rest of us, <laughs> <laughs> get a day job in the industry you want to be in. So um, an example, the writer of um, the Final Destination movies, he was an assistant. And I want to make sure I get this right, but, but you, you can research it. Fine, but he was an assistant to the head of New Line Movies, New Line Production, and it was a movie movie studio that's owned now by Warner Brothers. He was the assistant to the, the head of the company, had this idea for Final Destination, wrote it up. He could submit it to, to New Line because he's sitting at, you know, he's at the desk of the guy who's in charge and he was a good assistant and the guy liked him because he was good at his job. And then they looked at it and said, this is great. And then they, and that's how, it, how he got in front of New Line and it got made. So was he an overnight success? Sure. Final Destination became big. And he, but you know what? He spent two, three, four years as an assistant. And, and who knows what he, I don't even know what he did before he got that job. Years ago, I, there was a woman I knew at, at Sci-Fi who um, was switching industries. She was one industry, she wanted to get into the TV industry. But in between, she needed to work before she landed a job in TV. And, and she took temp jobs. She told the temp agency, only give her jobs in the TV business for TV networks and, and, and studios. So that, and then when she was at Sci-Fi working, a job came open and she was there because she was temping for us. And she was almost like an internal candidate. People knew her, she did good work. She was a go-getter. She was can-do, positive attitude. People liked her, she got that job. And then she's had a very, very good career in the, um, in the TV industry because she was near the people that that had the hiring decisions and could see see what she's doing. So you, you do start in the mailroom or someone's assistant. Yeah. Everyone, you know, and but you know if you want to work in in you know uh, any other industry, you know you you want to work in plastics as they you know in the graduate. You want to work <laughs> yeah. in plastics, Joel. You know, be an assistant in a company that does plastics. Don't 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 be an assistant. You know, at a TV network, if you want to work in plastics, you know, just put yourself in front of the people. And then the other thing, more advice is do informational interviews as many as you can. Because a lot of times people come in and they say, do you have a job? Oh, you don't? Okay, no jobs open. All right. Uh, let me back off. 
better spend, and, and that doesn't help, right? Ask right. people for information. Use LinkedIn. Use your school connections, college, you know, high school, neighborhood, anything, to find people who are in the business that you want to be in. And and don't ask for a job. Ask for an informational interview. Everyone loves. I mean, look at this podcast that you do. You you bring up people who talk about themselves and love to give yeah. advice. <laughs> um, people love to talk about themselves. They love to give advice. So ask people for informational interviews. And then you're all of a sudden in front of people who maybe could hire you in the future. Uh, if they hire you, you know, they know you. Now you're not some random candidate, you know, coming, coming in. You're someone they know. They might, you know, you do 100 informational interviews. The odds are one of them will have, one of those people will have a job come open within, you know, a couple of months of meeting you. And then follow up, a thank you note, a, a follow-up email um, a couple of months later. Hey, you know, great meeting you. Um, you know, I saw what you did, um, whatever deal you closed, that's exciting. Um, you know, I, 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 maybe you could connect me with someone else or, you know, then you could say, do you have anything open? But get yourself in front of people. It, it's all about networking. And now with LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, I mean, try to follow someone you you, you admire on, on Twitter and, and see if they'll strike up a relationship DMing with you. I mean, there's a million ways that we didn't have when we were younger that people could do. But, but the informational interview is something that I, I did in my day. Instead of asking for a job, ask to milk that person's brain. And even if it doesn't turn into a job, because 99 times out of 100, it won't. You've learned something. Um, yeah. And you've got more experience speaking to people. And maybe you learn, wow, I thought it was, I, I, maybe that's not what I want to do after talking to a bunch of people who do it. I, but that's how that's useful too. So, that's kind of the advice I have for, for young people starting. Get yourself in front. You know, if you want to be the next, you know, major novelist, publish stories uh, like in your collection, but then go work for a company that does stories or online. You know, um, there's plenty of, of uh, you know, part-time work online doing this. Start your own online magazine. You know, there's, yeah. there's, build a website. Just do the thing you want to do. Good. Well, that's awesome. As, as your money make as the way as the way to make money because you have to make money. That's awesome. Well, as I knew it would happen, we've already gone through an hour here, and uh, I have the other fifty questions there for another interview that we can do maybe a bit later. But anyway, I really appreciate uh, this time that we've had to, to talk. And I know we've got some good information for the aspiring writers um, who listen to this. You're fantastic. Uh, I love talking to you. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm honored to be invited on this podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast, where we get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. I also want to thank Carnation for sponsoring this show. Carnation not only tastes good, they have good taste. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye.